The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. Welcome to episode 11. On today's programme, never mind go west, we're heading east to look at the wines and styles we should be looking for in Eastern Europe. They offer amazing diversity, distinctive grapes and superb value as well. So Freddie Bulmer from the Wine Society, who buys in that region, will mark your card. Talking of distinctive, Portugal is a treasure trove for the wine lover. At one point, they even lost count of their indigenous varieties, apparently. Master of Wine, Dercio Viana Jr. is an expert and a leading judge, and he's going to guide us through a desert island selection from Portugal. And what does it take to make own label wine. It's a huge category from supermarkets to fine wine brokers and even restaurant own labels. Rebecca Palmer from the venerable Cornian Barrow will reveal some trade secrets for us. Plus, we'll have the latest selection of recommendations from the IWSC medal winners in our Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. We're heading east now to take in the countries that were once defined and also restricted by the Iron Curtain, and these days are often referred to as the New Europe. There's nothing remotely new about making wine in most of these countries, however. Rather, there's a rich seam of indigenous varieties and winemaking traditions. Freddie Bulmer is a buyer for the Wine Society, and he knows this patch like the back of his hand. Hello, David. Thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure. Third, third time's a charm, as they say. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's the treble. Yeah, well done. So <laughs> Eastern Europe in one go. It's a bit of an undertaking, even for uh, this particular programme. But uh, before we get into uh, specific countries and varieties to look out for, taking what we kind of consider as Eastern Europe as a whole, why do you think it's worth heading this way for wine? What attracts you to it? I think there's so much that it offers, actually. It's a, it's a wine lover dream, or certainly a wine geek dream anyway, because there's just no end to possible discoveries. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big uh, area geographically when we talk about, you know, Eastern European wine uh, that covers a lot of land. So it's very difficult to to ever kind of exhaust the options there. And also what I think makes it so interesting is just the sheer number of grape varieties that you don't find anywhere else in the world, really. Uh, you know, there's all these fascinating indigenous varieties uh, in this part of the world, which make really quite unique wines. So, you know, when uh, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, Eastern European wine, I think it's, that, I mean, that's a very, very broad uh, segment, I guess, of, of a wine world. And, and there's so many discoveries to make. It's fascinating. Well, before we drill down into some of those discoveries, it's worth a little bit of history here, because before the Iron Curtain came up or, or was pulled down from its uh, metaphorical pelmet, to be more accurate, um, the influence of what was then the Soviet Union um, I mean, they liked wine, but it wasn't really a positive for winemaking necessarily, was it? No, it wasn't really, no. So uh, it was a very, well, uh, it's a, it was a very restrictive period, I guess, um, 
for winemakers in Eastern Europe, there was very little that they could really do or that they could explore. Uh, a lot of the wine was was being sold to the same places. Um, and so I think we still, even now, uh, what are we, 30 years on really from the fall of the Iron Curtain, um, we do still see a little bit of the, well, actually quite a lot of the impact uh, that that era had on the wine production in this part of the world. Um, so I think it's only really now that people are starting to uh, spread their wings a little bit more as winemakers and also uh, learn a little bit more about the consumers in, in you know, this part of Europe um, and, and, you know, the UK, but also uh, places like France, Italy, Spain and so on, and learn about what people are actually wanting to drink um, outside of what had been the kind of the historic marketplaces for, for wines on, on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. Um, so, you know, there's, there's still a huge amount of progress being made. There's still a long way to go, I think, for the wine quality and wine production in certain parts of, of Eastern Europe. But it's really not surprising, you know, when they were kind of under the, under the rule of a, of a, a very restrictive regime, I guess. Um, it's not surprising that there's, there's still a lot more for them, them to achieve. But, you know, thankfully... The quality uh, of, of wines from the, the, this part of the world just seems to just go up and up and up every year, and I think that again is something that makes it such an exciting, such an exciting place to explore. Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, as a consumer, really noticed that just even in the last ten years. So, as a buyer, give us a sense of the improvement. Give us a sense of what has changed. I think one thing which is really exciting, and, and I think has been perhaps a recent change is uh, seeing winemakers uh, really embrace their indigenous grape varieties, which, which is great because, you know, they offer something genuinely unique versus grapes that are on offer throughout the rest of Europe. Uh, I think the, the, the quality of winemaking in terms of winery cleanliness uh, is something which has improved massively in the last, you know, couple of decades in particular. But one thing which has been hugely beneficial, and I think we see this around the world, but actually it's a more recent thing to happen in, in parts of Eastern Europe, is winemakers having had the opportunity to go and make wine in other parts of the world before then going back to, you know, wherever their maybe a family winery is in Bulgaria, Moldova, Romania, whatever, and applying what they've learned there. So that means that there's a fantastic... Um, sort of bit of innovation, I guess, which is which is happening throughout Eastern Europe and techniques that people are bringing back with them and applying to their own wines. And that really is helping quality go up and up. But also from a buying point of view, um, what's what's really fantastic, and there is a really strong string in, in the Eastern European bow, is the, the value, uh, the, the, the price to quality ratio, I think, in parts of Eastern Europe is almost unbeaten in other parts of the world actually oh we've yeah seen, yes we've seen on the, on the whole you know the, the quality go up and up and up and up but actually the price has stayed relatively low so as much as i like to talk a lot about indigenous grape varieties it's a fantastic part of the world from a buying point of view for finding international grape varieties but at fantastically low prices you know so that's a, a another thing that it can offer yeah, I mean, the best quality, best value Cabernet Sauvignon I've ever had, I think, came from Bulgaria. But more of that in a minute, because uh, I want to start with Hungary, just because yeah. I'm being a bit selfish, because I'm I'm a huge fan <laughs> of, of Hungary. I love the wines. You were the Wine Society buyer 
for Hungary for quite a while. Um, what should we look for there, uh, starting with whites? So the key grape variety, I guess, for white wine in Hungary would be ferment, which is most famous for producing, well, for being part of um, the blend of, of sweet Tokai, uh, Hungary's famous dessert wine. But actually, there's more and more fantastic dry ferment being produced now. It's quite a tricky grape, or it can be anyway. You know, it's a little bit like what people say about Pinot Noir, where it's very hard to find good examples under £10. But they are certainly out there. But ferment for me is is really a great variety to watch. It's very exciting. Uh, there's also uh, the, I think, increasingly popular or increasingly well-known, albeit still fairly niche in the scheme of things, Hungarian white blend Egri Chilag, which is a, quite a recent-ish uh, sort of creation. I guess I think it only goes back 10, 15 years, uh, something like that. Uh, but that is uh, produced from the Eger region in northern Hungary and, and is a, a blend of white grape varieties. The, the dominating sort of percentage in the blend should be indigenous varieties. But Egri Chilag can be such lovely, crisp, fresh, uh, just sort of simple and charming summery white wine. I think that's really one to look out for this summer. And what about the reds as well? Ah, so yeah, there's some fantastic Hungarian red wine. People are probably most familiar with Bull's Blood of years gone by. That really uh, did kind of capture the imagination maybe 20 years or so ago. And that is still around. We don't really see the term Bull's Blood around as much anymore. It's um, now ten tends to go by its kind of uh, local name of, of uh, Egri Bikavere. Uh, which also comes from the Egger region, the same as the white wine I was just talking about. And the um, the, the dominant variety in the blend um, is Kek Frankos, which actually is the same grape variety as uh, Blau Frankish in Austria, but should again be predominantly indigenous grape varieties. And that's, I mean, that's, there's some fantastic examples out there. And again, like I was uh, saying sort of about Eastern Europe in general, although the Hungarians, you know, would be the first to say they're not Eastern Europe, and fair enough. Uh, but the, the, the quality has just been going up and up and up in recent years. And the wines have this wonderful freshness that they might not have had previously. Uh, so Bull's Blood or Egri Bikavere is one really to, to um, look at again, if you maybe haven't tried it for a while. Um, but actually, at the other end of the, the scale, I guess at the lighter end of the scale, there's a great variety that I love called Kadaka, which I guess you would say is probably more similar to Pinot Noir, or certainly if you're a Pinot Noir fan, that might be one to, to try. It's quite a difficult grape variety to grow, so we don't see so much of it around, or often it's blended away. Uh, but it makes these lovely, fresh, delicate, mm. fragrant, red-fruited wines, uh, which I think are really special, actually. And it's something I've tried to encourage winemakers to stick with a little bit more. And, you know, it's a bit of a prima donna grape. It's got a very thin skin and I think it can, it's susceptible to a lot of diseases. Um, but actually, when it's done well and when it's fresh and when it's light and the winemaker just lets the fruit sing, I think it's an absolutely delicious wine. Oh, yeah. I had uh, something akin to an epiphany, really, with Kadarka a few <laughs> years ago. I just I had never tried it before. And that lightness, that freshness, that wonderful sort of pure kind of raspberry character. I, it was just sensational with a slight chill, the kind of the perfect summer red, really. And yeah. I know you have uh, found that variety uh, in your current role in a different guise with a different name. So that moves us neatly on to Bulgaria because I was trying your Gamza last night, which is 
fantastic wine. And that is, of course, uh, Kadaka by a different name, isn't it? Yeah, that's actually something which is a little bit confusing, perhaps, uh, in, uh, well, when we're talking about Eastern European wine, is actually as much as there's a huge amount of indigenous grape varieties, there are quite a few that cross over and have their, uh, yeah, have one name in one country and a different name in another. But but yes, absolutely, Gamza is, is the same grape variety uh, in Bulgaria as uh, as Hungary's Kadarka. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it's such a lovely style. And as you quite rightly say, it's one that you can chill down, just fresh, light, red-fruited, sometimes the simplest way, um, red wine. And the the Gamza from Bulgaria, uh, it's from Bononia Estate. And I love that wine because for me, it, it's it's all about just letting the great variety sing. You know, there's no messing around with it. These have done such a great job at just uh, letting the fruit kind of talking. And it's so pure and so fresh and and so lovely chilled down on a hot day. I was really quite keen to show this wine actually at our press tasting and, and I love getting this wine in front of people because I think it just goes against what a lot of people expect perhaps from Eastern European red wines. I think uh, perhaps people mm. expect the wines to be quite sort of, you know, ripe, full body, tannic, you know, perhaps now I think unfairly, but um, you know, I can totally understand based on, on, on the past why people might think this, but also rustic. And I think the Bononia Estate Gamza actually is so the opposite of all of those things. It's just really fun to put it in front of people and, and kind of see their faces light up, you know, which is uh, which is lovely. It's such a such a great wine. Yeah, I mean, my face lit up uh, as I pretty much knew I, I would. I had tasted the tiny samples we were given at the press tasting, so I knew what I was in for, but it was a real treat to have a bottle of it. I suspect it's that old, um, for me at least, and I've been around a while, it's that sort of bull's blood thinking that makes you associate some of those rustic bull's blood wines from Hungary 20 years ago with what you mm. might get these days. And as you say, there's, there's such a difference. It's evolved so much. So turning to Bulgaria, because it's a, a country whose wines you, you know well, um, what, what else should we, apart from your Gamza, what else should we look out for there? Do you know, there's quite a number of great varieties in Bulgaria that I think are quite exciting. And there's actually, increasingly, there are wineries who are really actually getting, getting I think, the idea and the approach right. And they're letting the great variety show what it's capable of rather than where they might have historically used a bit too much oak or actually tried to make stuff taste like Cabernet Sauvignon because they know that, that you know, people like Cabernet Sauvignon. People have actually recently had a bit more confidence, I guess, to let, let grape varieties do the talking. And so in Bulgaria, there's a couple of key red grape varieties that I think are really interesting and it's, it's they're worth checking out, um, which would be Broadleaf Melnik, um, called Broadleaf Melnik because the leaves on the vines are huge, um, and also Mavrud. And they're two indigenous Bulgarian grape varieties. They do both make pretty full-bodied red wines. Uh, and so you do have to be a little bit selective, perhaps, uh, still about, you know, the wineries that you choose to buy these from, because it's very easy to over extract and have quite sort of unwieldy, massive tannins. But when they're done right, they can be really, really interesting and, and have lovely, lovely fruit, lovely sort of black fruit and, and the perfect wines, both of them for a good sort of steak or something like that. And in terms of the white wines, there's a Bulgarian white grape variety, which I think is really promising, uh, called Misket. And it's actually not a relation to Muscat, but does share quite a lot of, of sort of similar traits. It's aromatic. It's got a lovely kind of floral nose. 
But for me, I think actually, in some cases, um, it, it offers a little bit more on the palate. So, so muscat, I, I find sometimes can promise loads on the nose and then on the palate, it's a bit, bit underwhelming uh, and doesn't quite deliver. But misket actually seems to, in the right hands, follow through on the, on the palate nicely and actually has good bit of structure and lovely crisp freshness. So that's certainly one to watch as well. Yeah, I know what you mean about muscat, all trousers and no mouth sometimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so you're talking a lot here about uh, indigenous grape varieties. And of course, people like us get very excited by indigenous grape varieties. But uh, talk a little about international grape varieties too, because as you said, there is some real value to be uh, had there. They've become really rather expert at making these wines as well, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's a whole host of international grape varieties being made in these countries. And I think a lot of it probably stems from the fact that for a long, long time, um, they have been selling to their local market. Um, and I, I guess as well, it's probably a lot to do with the Iron Curtain, like we were talking about before, where, you know, it's not always been so easy to get wines in and out of some of these countries. So if you want to have what tastes like Bordeaux, but you can't easily get Bordeaux, you make something that, that is as close to it as possible. Um, so there's always been huge demand, uh, you know, in the local markets for, for Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot. Or also, you know, all the classics really, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Shiraz and so on. Um, but actually now a lot, of, a lot of producers do these really, really well. For me personally, I'm a real supporter of the indigenous grape varieties. I think that's what makes these countries really stand out and actually offer something which is completely unique because I guess we're spoilt for choice in the UK. You know, we've got so many wines available to us from so many different parts of the world. Just taking Cabernet Sauvignon as an example, if we want to buy a Cabernet Sauvignon, it's 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 really difficult to justify getting one from say Bulgaria, when we've got some of the greatest Cabernet Sauvignons from places that just do Cabernet Sauvignon at our fingertips. But mm. what some of these countries can do really, really well is offer unbe unbeatable value, you know, and I'm talking specifically really at the, the entry level. So for, for under seven pounds, I think, say, uh, Bulgaria can offer more syrup for your money than, than most other places in the world. Um, you know, and another great variety, which is an example of that, is Pinot Noir. So there's lots and lots of Pinot Noir in the world, obviously, lots and lots of very bad Pinot Noir in the world. And, and as I, I think I alluded to earlier, people say it's one of those great varieties that is very difficult under £10. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you do want an under £10 Pinot Noir, then Eastern Europe and you know Romania, Moldova, for example, are, are probably the best places to look uh, because th these countries offer such good value anyway. And they have economies of scale, which, which obviously helps. Um, but they can offer international grape varieties at, yeah, at, at incredible prices. So I think that's what these Eastern European winemaking countries can do with international grape varieties, which really does set them apart from the rest of the world. Yeah, it's a really good point. And on Pinot Noir, you know, I've I've said this before, I think, on this programme, but I've always been of the view uh, that, you know, three things in life are certain death, taxes <laughs> and cheap Pinot being absolutely awful but <laughs> that, but it's it's no longer the case you know i had a, a, a waitrose uh, blueprint uh their tasting their press tasting yesterday 5.99 uh, romanian pinot noir and it really was for the price absolutely astonishing just in incredible value so i'm definitely having to move my uh, position on that uh, that old old adage um 
Some of the countries we're talking about have a very long history uh, with wine. Uh, so they're not really emerging countries, are they? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's quite an unfair term to use, I think, um, in many ways. Um, and, you know, it's something that I think we're all very guilty of in the wine industry, certainly in the UK, referring to these countries as emerging regions. They, as you say, have often, a lot of, in a lot of cases, have been making wine for centuries. Uh, but I guess, again, due to the political circumstances of recent history, they have not really just, I guess, been making it to the UK, you know. So we haven't seen these wines much until more recently. And therefore, I think an assumption comes with that, that actually, oh, well, this must be this must be new stuff then. Um, so, you know, and I think that there, there's, I guess, uh, a little bit of truth to the to the term emerging region. Certainly the the potential is now emerging or is or is being um, reached, I guess, or certainly moving towards it, which is fantastic and is exciting to see. But in terms of winemaking history, a lot of these countries have been doing it for a long, long, long time. So I think it's not fair for us to, to think of these places as newcomers. Um, but what they are doing is, is I, guess, I guess, just getting up to speed with what we like to drink in the UK a little bit more. So, you know, it's perhaps not the most accurate term, but... Um, I don't know. Can you think of a of something that would work a bit better? Well, I suppose uh, improving actually is is a, a better word, really, isn't it? it but it's uh, uh, but of course that's highly subjective. It's improving in terms of what we like to drink. Uh, that's I, I it. Yes, but um, yeah. Uh, if you could, we've. I mean, we've only skirted around um, some some countries here, which is all you can do in in less than half an hour. But if you could single out a specific country or perhaps a variety even in Eastern Europe that you think has enormous, perhaps untapped potential, uh, what would it be, do you think? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, and I think that's quite a tough question as well, because I think we haven't really uh, seen the full potential of some of these great varieties in this part of the world just yet. So, uh, you know, as people are sort of cleaning up their act and polishing their winemaking techniques, we're starting to see things emerge. And uh, I touched on ferment earlier. I think that's something that, that, that's really quite special and is certainly one to watch. But I, I do believe that there's still a lot of great varieties out there that may well surprise us in years to come. And I mean, uh, as much as it's not, you know, in the same category that we're talking about today, but just as an example, uh, Zinomavro from Greece, which I know you're a fan of yourself, um, that's a great variety, which now we're also excited about because there's actually a, a number of winemakers who have really, um, you know, taken this grape on and, and they've made it their mission to really make the grape uh, a pleasurable, exciting, delicious drink um, and, and use modern winemaking techniques in a lot of cases. And now we're going, oh, OK, this grape variety that no one was paying any attention to 10 years ago suddenly is the most exciting grape variety in Europe. Um, and I think that we can find that in, in Eastern Europe as well. Um, so there might well be some grapes that actually do really surprise us in five, 10 years that we're not even talking about now. Um, I think that, as I touched on earlier, a grape varieties like Mavrud in the right hands uh, from Bulgaria can potentially make some really, really fascinating wines. Um, but for me, I would say probably 
Ferment is probably the one to watch at the moment, I'd say. Yeah, and it's the right time of the year to be talking about Ferment as well, isn't it? Because it's, uh, I mean, it's great all year round, but it's uh, really fantastic on a, a summer's evening now that the sun is uh, finally at last mm. shining. So, uh, yes, <laughs> well, enjoy, enjoy a, a glass of uh, Ferment uh, a little later on. And, uh, Freddie, once again, thank you so much uh, for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for the first of our medal winners. Last week, we began the 2021 Northern Hemisphere medal winners, and we continue with the 21s, and it makes sense to head to Eastern Europe after our chat with Freddie for a gold medal winning Tokai, Mad Winery, an historic cooperative which also did well in last year's awards, gets a gold and 96 points for its Mad One 2018, described by the judges as having beautiful purity and minerality which shine as this wine builds in power in the mouth. Melon, pineapple, lemon, herbs and smoke all appear on the creamy palate, finishes with a lovely salty, nutty tang. Tokai is known, of course, for its luscious sweet wines, but the ferment dry whites are equally special, as Freddie was saying, and this has a special shaped bottle too. Uh, the wines are closed with a very attractive looking Vinolok crystal stopper, so well worth trying. And to Slovenia for a ferment again, 1971 this time, from Puklavec family wines. This is an archive wine, fairly obviously, from their cellars, described by the judges as incredibly intense and complex with aromatics, honey, flowers, orange, herbs, spice and oak all leaping from the glass. The harmonious palate has an amazing smooth texture and is focused with plenty of energy complex right to the end of its long finish. This is a wine with a long future, they said. Not bad for something that's older than I am, even. The Podravie region is often referred to as the Tuscany of the East. Same latitude as Bordeaux and 2,000 sunshine hours a year. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's time for our Desert Island Drinks feature now. Each episode, we turn our attention to a particular wine or spirit, a variety, a region, or even a whole country, which is what we're doing now with Portugal. Dirsu Viana Jr. is a master of wine, and he's on the judging committee at the IWSC as well, presiding over the judging sessions with uh, people like me, judging wines. Uh, That's where we all know him as Junior, bit easier to say for us Brits anyway. Uh, Junior, thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. David, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to, to join you and I'm looking forward to share a little bit of my knowledge with, with your listeners. Yeah, great. Well, you're a real expert in the field of Portuguese wines, though you're Brazilian by birth. How did you get into the wines of Portugal? Obviously, there's a cultural connection and a language connection there, but how did you get into those wines specifically? Well, when I became a, an MW, I was a buyer and I was buying wine from anything from one euro to some of the best wines in the world. As I was the first male uh, South American to become a master of wine, I was trying very hard not to be pigeonholed into South America. 
Uh, I studied in Napa, I studied in Alsace, I studied in Champagne. And I was just working very hard not to be seen as the guy that only knows about South America. So an opportunity um, came my way just about 2010. And I was I followed the steps of uh, Ollie Smith and Tim Atkin, I think Oz Clark also. And I was invited to um, uh, make the selection of the 50 great Portuguese wines. So I traveled to Portugal uh, several weeks and I tasted hundreds and hundreds of wines. And then that's when uh, I had been to Portugal before, uh, mostly to Douro. But uh, uh, 2010 is when I really started to get into to Portugal. Oh, well, tell us what makes Portugal's wines so special to you then. It's been an amazing journey since 2010, but uh, some of the things I would highlight is, is the sheer quality of the wines. I think if, if a, a, a consumer is, uh, as I call a low involvement consumer, somebody who just wants a good glass of wine, uh, Portugal is, is great. It's just, just offered great value. It's simple as that. And if for uh, a consumer who is uh, more highly, I, I call it highly involved uh, consumer, people who actually want to know what they're drinking, look at the back labels and so on, Portugal has so much diversity. There are lovely stories. And I have a distant cellar at home, and sometimes I don't know if I want to drink something fruit forward, uh, an Australian or New Zealand or Chilean wine, or sometimes I want to drink a Chilean or a Italian wine, which is more structured. And Portugal, for me, always falls in the middle. It has the lovely, juicy fruit of New World, but has the structure of, of the Old World. And I, I, very often I default to, to Portugal when I'm drinking wine. Uh, and also, if you compare uh, some of the great classics in, in the world, I think Portugal has an answer. Uh, and, and again, offering great value. We tend to think of port, in this country at least, when we think of Portugal. In, in some respects, it's been almost pigeonholed for port, uh, which is a, you know, a, a great shame because the wines are, are so good. I mean, that is definitely changing. Winemaking itself has gone through a relatively rapid revolution over the last few decades in Portugal, hasn't it? Yes, David. I think if you go back 30 years ago, talk about Portugal, most people would immediately uh, draw their attention to, to ports. It's all fortified wine. And then maybe 20 years ago uh, is when still wines have begun to get more more serious. But I, I, still, I, I still think the mentality of, of the winemaker at the time was, uh, it was using a lot of the ports uh, uh, know-how. So the wines were a little bit harder, uh, a little bit more structured and so on. But I think in the last decade, it's been amazing with the exchange of knowledge of so many people uh, going into Portugal, some joint ventures with some producers from France and so on. So in the last decade, the still wines of Portugal grew enormously. And uh, we're talking about Douro itself, but in parallel, look at the other regions like Down or uh, Venus Verdes, and, and the quality is, is shot up uh, incredibly quickly. I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not, that when Portugal joined what we now call the EU, but I think was then probably the EEC in 1986, there were no official records of how many indigenous grape varieties the country actually had. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, th you, you are right. I think the, the legislation itself and the official recognition only came in 2000. But I have done a, a, a project with the, with the government of Portugal, uh, just around rare grape varieties. So uh, apart from tasting, apart from uh, evaluating those wines, I have done a lot of research. And there is a library uh, in the Institute of Vine and Wine in Lisbon. 
of Lisbon. And there is an amazing uh, documents and books and historical perspectives going back to 17th and 18th century. So there's a lot of, of records and, and, and Portuguese, they kept that very, very well. But officially, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been all put to law in, in 2000. And the other thing which is interesting to, to know, for people who, who enjoy wine and, and, and try to learn a bit more, uh, Portugal uh, still is a little bit challenging because of, uh, of the unusual varieties. But it, it, used, it used to be even more difficult because one variety was known by many, many different names depending where it was grown. And since, uh, since 2008, that, this has been massively simplified. So legally now, uh, a, one variety only has one, sometimes has, uh, has two names, but that's been massively simplified and made the, the life of the consumer much, much easier. Yeah, and they really needed to do that because the names can sometimes uh, be a, a little terrifying in themselves. And actually, when you learn that a grape variety has another name somewhere else and another name somewhere else, it gets even more uh, bewildering. Those regions, that diversity, Portugal isn't a huge country, but it does offer quite uh, a striking uh, regional diversity, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, if you just put it in perspective, Portugal is... Uh, UK is about two, two and a half times uh, larger than, than Portugal. So uh, UK is not a, a huge, uh, it's, not, it's not a huge, uh, a massive, uh, doesn't have a much, uh, a large surface, but Portugal is much, much smaller. But there is massive, uh, incredibly uh, diversity in terms of, of soils. Even if you compare uh, areas uh, next to each other, for example, Vinhos Verdes and, and Douro, they are completely different soils. Climate is completely different from from the north of Portugal, which is cooler to the to the south, and you have Atlantic influence and, and Mediterranean influence and so on, and then you have the more than two hundred and fifty different grape varieties, and you overlay that with the with the with people, which there are some some of the old guys, some of the more experienced winemakers, they are incredible people, but also there is a a, a new uh, generation of young uh, winemakers full of energy full of curiosity and i think that all this all combines soils climate grape varieties and and the human factor it it's uh, just adds to this incredibly diversity and there's a fascinating thrilling array of different varieties to choose from indigenous to portugal sometimes specific to a specific area and uh, sometimes you don't get very much of it. So I'm thinking, for example, I love Encruzado, but you very rarely see it and it's so often blended. So starting with the whites, uh, and perhaps starting with Encruzado, if you don't mind, um, which would you highlight? Which would you talk about? That, what should we try? Well, I think it, the more you know about Portugal, uh, Portugal has, yes, we have, there is Sauvignon Blanc and there is Chardonnay, there is uh, Syrah, Merlot planted there and Cabernet, etc. But there, uh, a, a huge number of, of grape varieties and uh, I, that where we can find answers for. Uh, for example, if you like Sauvignon Blanc, uh, you can go and try Azal, uh, it's, which is a grape variety that is planted in, in, in the north of the country. If you like Chardonnay, as you said, you can go and try uh, Encruzado and so on and so forth. So uh, in talking about specifically about white grape varieties, I, I would highlight one of my favorites is Encruzado. 
the problem with Ingrosal, as as you mentioned, it, it is very rarely seen as a as a as a variety because it was planted as in in vineyards in mixed planting. So there was there was never one hundred percent Ingrosado until very recently. I think the first variety of Ingrosado was not until until early nineties. So it's, it's a baby, considering if you compare wines from uh, Georgia, for example, the Riccatelli and, and Mazzavani, those varieties they've been made for uh, since uh, the thousands for thousands of years. So Encruzado is a baby in, in comparison. But uh, yeah, if you like, I would highlight Encruzado. And if, if you do like Burgundy, if you like Chardonnay, if you like Chenin Blanc, I, I would recommend go for Encruzado. Another good variety, David, is Arinto. Arinto is it's, uh, it's incredible. It grows uh, all over Portugal. It makes different styles of wine depending on where it's grown. It can make very light, elegant, vibrant, fresh uh, uh, white wines, but also if you if you treat them differently, you can make some really serious and um, age-worthy white wines. So if you like uh, Chardonnay, if you like uh, Pinot Blanc, if you like uh, Riesling, if you like uh, Chenin Blanc or Pinot, uh, things like that, you can go and try Arinto. The other variety which uh, Portugal shares with Spain and, and is one of, one of the varieties for certain that is going to become one of the most trendy varieties in the coming years is Alvarinho, which in Spain people uh, refer to as um, Albarino, and it's been planted in Portugal and Spain by now. You see more and more in the USA and uh, New Zealand, Argentina, and so on. But Albarino from Portugal is wonderful. It's uh, it's, it's got lovely uh, aromatic profile with lovely notes of grapefruit, citrus fruit, peaches, and so on. So if you like Grunewald Lina, if you like Viognier, if you like Chenin Blanc, if you like uh, even Cortese or Pinot Grigio from Italy, Alvarino, it, it, it's, it's a very good alternative. So those are, the, those are the most planted varieties, but there are quite a, a lot of rare, I mean, I don't know if you ever heard of a, a, a great variety called Jampao. No. There is only, it's only 31 hectares uh, planted, and there is only one producer who makes... Uh, makes uh, 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 Jean Pao and uh, it's it's incredible so if you if uh, going back to the, what I, uh, I said to you earlier if you if you if, if uh, there's a consumer who is li- highly involved like uh, to tell stories like to uh, share some something new with their friends you go and uh, buy a bottle of Jean Pao and tell the story it's it, it's it's an incredible story but more importantly the wine is exceptionally good well i should look that out and you're absolutely right about alvarino as well because it, it often offers a lot better value than alvarino just slightly north as well doesn't it yeah exactly it's, it it does offer a great value but uh, it's becoming more popular in the in the, uh, and people also the one thing people haven't uh, uh, understood yet is the Alvarino, like uh, also like Grunewaldliner uh, from Austria. They age very very well. I've tasted uh, Alvarinos that are uh, 10, 20 years old, which have been absolutely incredible. So it's uh, people will have to discover those varieties, and they also will discover in the future that many of them. Including Encruzado, uh, I have tasted. I said to you the first varietal wine uh, Encruzado was uh, there was commercial was in the early nineties, but I have tasted Encruzado from uh, the, 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 from microvinifications from the sixties, even before people start planting Encruzado in 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 hundred percent in vineyards, because as as I said to you before, they used to be planted in, as mixed plantings, uh, mm. and I've tasted some some of those wines from the sixties, and they age 
incredibly, incredibly well. Wow. And let's do the same for reds. Uh, again, there are uh, varieties that I think are relatively niche that I really love. Alfrachero springs to mind. You don't see it very often. Uh, it's a similar story of lots to discover, isn't it? Yes. Um yeah, there are a lot, a lot of varieties to, to discover. There are many which I, I, I really love. Controversially, I, I, I would start with one, maybe perhaps not the best, but I would start with Alicante Boucher. And you turn around to me and say, hang on a second, Alicante Boucher is not Portuguese. Alicante Boucher is, is French. And I said, yes, you're right. Alicante Boucher is French. Uh, and it was developed by, by France, but it's been, uh, it's been adopted by Portugal. Uh, it's the country who I think Alicante Boucher uh, really show its, its, its character. It's planted in the US, it's planted in many, many countries, but Portugal has adopted. And there's nothing wrong with, with being adopted. Uh, if you look back in history, uh, no. Marilyn Monroe, uh, John Lennon, Bill Clinton, <laughs> Nelson Mandela, they were all adopted. They were all amazing human beings. <laughs> but, yes, uh, too true, too uh, true. <laughs> Alicante Boucher is it's, it's a variety which, is, it, 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 which stands very well, uh, really uh, warm and dry climate and retains freshness and, is, and ages amazingly well. So Alicante Boucher is a variety which I like, uh, but uh, true Portuguese variety, Torriga Nacional, from, for me, is, it's, it's amazing uh, as part of a blend because it, it gives lovely flavor in aromatic compounds, but also by itself, it get, makes some wonderful wines. Torriga Franca is great. So uh, as I said, there, there are answers for, for many things. So if, if a consumer likes, I like Pinot Noir, or I like a lighter style of uh, Shiraz, for example, I say, okay, try Jaén. If you, I like something more structure, firm, uh, a little bit more grape and acid, okay, try uh, uh, something like Nebbiolo. Say, okay, go and try Baga from, from Bayrada. So Portugal has answers for, for any, any wine in the world. And it's uh, just so diverse, as you say. Uh, we can't uh, talk about Portugal without uh, straying uh, into the Atlantic and going to Madeira uh, because Madeira is sort of, um, sometimes forgotten, I think, and perhaps isn't enormously fashionable, but uh, it is, I think, once you discover it, uh, we're talking about the drink rather than the island, although I'm looking forward to seeing the island as well. Once you discover this, uh, it, it is just incredible. It's it's like opening a, a cask of, of treasure, isn't it, Madeira? Yeah, Madeira, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's uh, for those people who don't know, it's got a massive historical importance. I think the British have been uh, shipping Madeira for, for centuries, and Madeira is the wine that Thomas Jefferson used to toast the signing of the U.S. Declaration of Independence. So it's a very historical, but uh, and the wines age brilliantly. I have um, people often say to me, oh, which, which, which is your favorite wine? Which is your best wine? It's difficult to tell because I, I have been very lucky to taste some of the best wines in the world. Uh, so, uh, you, can, you, you name it, some of the, the greatest French wines I have tasted. But one wine that has been the most memorable for me has been a Madeira from 1703. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, and it's a wine that, uh, if you think about the people who made the wine, people who kept the wine, it's it almost, when you taste the wines, it, 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 it moves you. It's, it's incredible. And uh, yeah, the wines from the uh, 1703 was the oldest, but the many wines from 1820s, so on and so forth. Uh, the wines, they age incredibly, incredibly well. Um, I was traveling with some friends of mine and they're all uh, 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 top 
I mean, wine producers and, and wine connoisseurs, and they, they, they drink French wine. So I, I took a bottle of Madeira with me, and we got to, to where we were going to Greece on a holiday. And uh, when I, I, I produced a bottle of Madeira, uh, they said to me, say, why you brought this bottle of Madeira? Who, who's going to drink? I said, no, don't worry. If you don't want it, I'll drink it myself. So on the, on the first night, I just had a little glass and someone, can, I, can we please taste it? And, they t- and we all tasted it. And from then on, every night we'll come back from wherever we're coming back from. And they say, oh, let's have a little glass of Madeira before we go to bed. And <laughs> it's just amazing. They are such amazing wine. And as you said, it's, it's a little bit uh, uh, misunderstood and, 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 uh, and, and good for some of us because it's still offering incredible value for money. Yeah, it really is. And you should have kept that bottle of Madeira in your bedroom uh, for yourself rather than uh, uh, sharing it around. Uh, it was bound to become um, a hit with uh, the others. If they were interested in wine, they're going to love Madeira, I think. Uh, Junior, it is always uh, such a pleasure to uh, chat to you and to uh, have the benefit of your knowledge. Um, thanks very much indeed for talking Portugal with us on The Drinking Hour. David, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And it's time for our next medal winners from the IWSC, and it has to be Portugal this time. First, a gold medal winning port, Copque Colletta, 1978. The judges said... Excellent in all aspects. Caramel and molasses on the nose. Palate abundant with deeper toffee, vanilla and ripe prune. Cedar spices combined with fine citrus fruit around a red fruit core. Balanced and with further evolution still to come. Seriously good, they said. This is the oldest porthouse existing since 1638, before the Douro regions were even demarcated. A leader in Coleta ports, the grapes are planted at 600 metres. That one is available at Hayward Brothers. And a wine next, Reserva Branco 2019 from Monte San Sebastian in the Douro, a silver medal winner. The judges saying, gentle and creamy texture to the floral and lime-fruited palate. It's made from Rabigato and it's described as a great alternative to Chablis. It's £20 at cellarwineshop.co.uk, so also a great price alternative to Chablis. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Own brand wines, often called private label, are one of the biggest growth areas in the industry over recent years. You only have to pop into your local supermarket to notice the number of wines that carry its own label. For those retailers, the benefits are obvious. They can offer a range of wines under their own name while controlling pricing, margins and the rest. But it's not just the chain stores. Some of the most venerable names in the merchant world also have their own brand offerings. Cornian Barrow, which holds royal warrants, is one such example. And their associate director, Rebecca Palmer, uh, joins us now. Uh, hello, Rebecca. Thanks for joining the hour. Hello, David. Thanks for having me on. It's very nice to have you here. Uh, when I think of own brand, as I mentioned there, I, I tend to think of the supermarkets because it's huge for them, especially in this country. Uh, but Cornian Barrow has its own successful own brand. <clears throat> um, what? How, how do you choose the wines that you put into that own label? An interesting question. I mean, we've had an own label range for years and years, 
certainly predates me and I've been with Corny and Barry for um, coming up 15 years now. But many distribution distributors and merchants um, have their own brands. As you say, it allows you to, you know, create a, a, a range where you can control pricing margins. But it's not just that. I mean, for us, it's about you know, taking the Corny and Barrow name to a wider audience. It's also, you know, the opportunity to, to create a range that you're proud of with benchmark wines at different levels of price and perhaps, you know, more approachable um, levels of price than, than perhaps some of the wines that we might be known of, particularly as Corny and Barrow, for example, as you as you mentioned in the chat earlier, you know, the likes of, of DRC or Demenda Flev and, and that sort of, of high level wine. But, you know, not everybody drinks that sort of wine for breakfast every day. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so, you know, for us, it's about creating wines that will meet the needs of our customers on a range of, of different occasions. And we actually spend a, a huge amount of time on this range so much uh, time and and dedication in terms of finding the wines that we want to put under our label. I mean, actually, it's quite a responsibility. I bet it is. I mean, Cornea Barrow is an interesting example because I, when I think of C&B, think of being a customer and think of those wines I mentioned that are labelled with Cornea Barrow's name. But you mm. also supply into the on-trade to hotels and restaurants in a very big way. How do you go about building a range like that? Well, you know, as with all our buying, it's about understanding, you know, what our customers need and want and also being continually aware of what's going on around the world and what's available, what's what's coming up, what's new, what's exciting, what's also reliable, solid, the pricing, exchange rates, all the rest of that. And, you know, spinning that in the mix and working out, you know, how you can create a compelling, a compelling offering for your your end consumer, and that's true whether you're talking of a private um, consumer, you know, drinking at home, or, or whether you are creating something for the on trade. And if you've got a name like Cordy and Barrow, um, you've got uh, someone in your role developing new wines, developing ranges. You have a, a rather enormous responsibility on your shoulders, don't you? Because this is a name that's synonymous with DRC and, and the like as its importer. A lot of people know and have high expectations of a brand like Corny and Barrow. So when you apply uh, that name to a wine, uh, do you feel the, the kind of weight of that? <laughs> yes, of course, because we we absolutely have to make sure that everything that we we do is as good as it can be. I mean, this is partly why, you know, I'm with Corning Barrow, you know, but there is a value, one of our values, our core values is about excellence. And when, when I'm considering any producer or wine, when any of our, our buying team are considering any producer or wine to come onto our range, there is a, a huge responsibility to make sure that you are uh, actually responding to, to, you know, the, the aura of the brand. And the buying philosophy, I and mean, it really goes from end to end. I mean, you know, whether it's a wine at eight pounds or, I don't know, 8,000 pounds, some wines can end up selling for more. You know, it's the same philosophy. It's about absolute quality, you know, about, how can I put this? It's about finding wines that we feel have a certain star quality, a certain special quality, you know, producers that are, working particularly well within their you know category whether that's 
in terms of their, their region, a particular style, a variety. And it's those people, and also with a, with a certain shared philosophy, which is all about the long term. We just don't want to, I mean, honestly, it's, a, it's challenging enough to find a producer among you know all of them that are out there that really have you know all these qualities and you know hopping in and out of bed with these people just isn't interesting we're in it for the long term and and it, this is a this is a you know core philosophy of the business i mean some of our partners date back i don't know 50 years and you know for example the producers who make our cmb label white and certain other wines in our portfolio, including their own brands, but also our own that we've developed. We've been working with them for over 30 years. And mm. there, is a, there is a real benefit. And of course, you continually reassess, re review during that period, but there is a beauty that comes out of a longer term understanding. And of course, some people may have been there all that time, but others, you know, come and go, but there is a sense of continuity and there's a sense of relationship that's really deep. And you understand why a certain wine from that place tastes the way it does and you, you together will be it, it's a partnership so mm. you know it's not just going in and taking and you know they it's not transactional it's not about being on the opposite side of the net it's about being on the same side of the net and and working to to do the best you can it sounds uh, i mean uh, it's uh, i i know it's a big responsibility but it does sound like a, a really uh, fantastic job I, I don't think a lot of people would appreciate how involved a buyer can get in the blending in the in the magic if you like in the making of a wine mm. Maybe not. And you know what? I mean, it, it is a grueling process. <laughs> Sometimes my friends might be working in banking or, I don't know, management consulting. And they say, oh, God, all you do is sit around and lie on a chaise long and drink wine all day. And, and <laughs> you know, on the other hand, you know, they, they might have, you know, been waking up and, and having, a, you know, a leisurely breakfast or something. And I'm, you know, head down, already tasted 30, 40, 50, you know, different tank wines all fizzing a bit cloudy and and thinking mm. you know oh my god it's only 9am i mean it can be it can be really grueling you do build up stamina but it's not it's not for for everyone and you really yeah. have to you have to develop uh, tasting stamina and mm. it's also i mean it's 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 um, holistic you you have to really want to to know what you're trying to achieve and you just have to focus and it, I mean, it took me a while to, to understand that. But I think one of my sayings is never give up. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, I, I always say to friends who, who, when I'm wine judging and they roll their eyes and say, oh, that sounds oh. like hard work, you know. And I said, no, it is. Try having a Chateau Neuf du Pape at half past nine in the morning. It's, it's a bit of a, a, shock to the, a shock to the system. But um, it, uh, it is um, also a, a privilege, as, as you were saying, and you've really yeah. emphasised that kind of that partnership. Um, how did you get into this then? Well, it was serendipity, really. I mean, I never set out to be... You know, I wasn't weaned on Eshazo or anything like that. I actually wanted to be a, a dancer and I trained really hard up to about when I was 16. I wanted to do that, but it, it didn't work out. I mean, I just wasn't in the end uh, good enough to make it. And so in the end, I sort of abandoned that dream and I actually ended up um, reading modern languages. So I went down the academic route and 
I didn't get into wine there particularly, though I did spend a year abroad in France and it was in the south. And, you know, I did get, how can I put this, exposure to quite a lot of wine during that time. It was very fun. But I, I didn't think about it, you know, seriously. But then I was in the Cambridge careers office because obviously nothing was online at that point. I mean, this was in the 90s. And I saw an ad for um, somebody to be a sort of girl Friday in an agency, a small French wine agency. And I went for the job and it was a company called Mistral Wines, which um, mm. imported wines, particularly from the south of France. It was subsequently bought by, by Berries because it had the agency for Beaucastel as well, um, probably the most famous one. But Wonderful. that was my start. Yeah. It was my start. And I mean, I was lucky because I wanted, I mean, the, the I suppose that the, the segue was, I mean, I wanted to, um, I'd found this flair for languages when I was in my teens and and then, you know, was able to to study those. And you need languages if you want to be a buyer, or, or rather it gives you a, a hugely strong advantage. And if you don't have them, it will hold you back. Because, you know, still, although the new world, um, you know, that where there is, is not so much of a requirement, I mean, you know, Chile and Argentina are very export focused. You don't necessarily need to speak Spanish, for example. But if you want to buy um, wines from many of the traditional regions of France, for example, you know, the Loire Valley or some of the more, you know, sort of uh, continental regions, you know, ones that are, are, are much more rural, you really need to speak French fluently. It's not just asking for a beer. I mean, you need mm. to be able to have a proper in-depth um, business conversation and also to be able to develop the relationship. And so, you know, languages are an absolute boon. And for me, wanting to enjoy them, you know, reveling in, in, in those, I, I, was, I wanted to find a job that, um, you know, a career where those were involved. And, and that's presumably why the ad was attractive to me in the first place. But that's how I got into it. And yeah, well, that, it's and the the languages thing. My my mother was a, a languages teacher, but um, oh, was she? I, well, she was, and but unfortunately, she, she uh, passed away when I was ten, and I never really took oh, languages sorry. seriously after that. So, and I wish I, I had because I have um, I've had the experience of being in in the Loire. You mentioned there in I think it was Chateau Tracy with a um, with a, mm. a, a a winemaker who spoke um, or was not going to speak a, a word of English, and my <laughs> uh, my French is terrible, and it really is schoolboy French and so I found myself uh, trying to communicate in this sort of pidgin French and it was painful but the wines were fantastic mm. but I just wished I was able uh, to have a proper conversation so I, I, I really you know I think that that language thing I'm, I'm very envious of the work that you you put into to, to having uh, languages. Um, the other thing you also do that's very interesting, you've got a background in designing uh, wine labels and wine branding, which is really, really important uh, to whether a wine is gonna shift or not. Um, people think it's just about the juice and it, maybe it should be, but it isn't. It's, it's about much more than that, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's about the whole experience of, of the wine itself and the impact, let's say, of design, whether that's the label, the shape of the bottle, the, the weight of it, the, the, the visuals. And there are plenty of quite poorly designed, I think, um, labels out there where actually what's in the bottle is not coherent with what's outside the bottle. And I strongly believe that, you know, what you put on the bottle and, and what you put the, actually the bottle itself needs to be coherent with the style of the wine itself. I mean, for example, if you had like a you know a heavy I don't know Chateau du Pat bottle and you've got like a you know a 
a delicate Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire inside it. It's just not, it's just not coherent. Mm. No, it's a really so good it's point. About, it's about trying to find coherence and, and not necessarily sort of creating a kind of steroidal look that, you know, is super expensive and, you know, just over-packaged. Uh, I think it's important to get that, that process right. But it's something that I, I do with my team a lot. And it's a fantastic team-building process as well because, you know, you get to see, um, you get to see a, a wine from nothing. You've got an idea and you've got a, a wine that you can blend to go in it. And so we have an idea and we put this blend together and then we need, we need to create a design. And, and we, we do that entire process. It's complicated, but it's, it's incredibly um, rewarding, I think, if you can get, get something right. But, you know, the skill of good designers is, it looks effortless, but it's... Um, yeah. It's really tough. Yes, it's uh, oh, it's, it's it's fascinating amazing. talking to you about it. It's um, there's so much more that goes into a wine than uh, just the, uh, the the juice. Although it's it's obviously the juice is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. But it's um, you know it's really really interesting. Thank you very much, yeah. Rebecca. It's, about it's enhancing. Um, yeah, uh, well, it, well, good word as well. Yeah. No, thank you for joining mm -hmm. us on the drinking hour. It's been really interesting hearing how a how a wine um, gets into the market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. And that is it for another episode of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks too to my guests. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, or you can follow me as well if you like. I'm at Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email us at the drinking hour at foodfmradio.com. But until next time, it's goodbye for now.